7. So here at Redeemer, we, um, our goal is, and what we do about 99% of the time is we just um, take a book of Scripture and we just teach through it, um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, over the course of however many weeks or months that we need in order to do that. Um, we do that intentionally. We feel like it, it forces us to preach passages that we would normally skip. Um, it, it allows us to see the author's desire and intent, and we see how things are building rather than just taking a verse here one week and then moving to another verse. We try to alternate between Old Testament and New Testament books because we want to see that all of God's Word um, is, is, is worthy and is beneficial and is useful um, for life and doctrine and, and to grow us. And so we've been in 1 Corinthians now for several weeks. Um, 1 Corinthians, it was the third letter that Paul wrote. Paul wrote it after having spent about three, three and a half years uh, in, in Corinth. He's um, writing it, I'm sorry, he spent 18 months in Corinth. He's writing it about three years later from the city of Ephesus. And he's writing back to basically a church that's roughly three now in makeup. It is a port city. It is a wealthy city that has an independent streak of folks that just saying, hey, we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, bootstraps and make this thing happen. And so with wealth and with a port city, um, all, the, all the things of the world have come in, um, have come in religiously, have come in with cults, have come in with ideologies, have come in with, with money, have come in with, with sexual sin and with vice. And so he is writing this letter as just as a pastor, writing to people that he knows and that he loves, saying, hey, so in this city of Corinth, we're not building a temple. We're not going to be like the other temples that are saying, hey, here's what our God is like. He says, the church, the people of God will be the temple, that you will be living with the Spirit in you, and as you are on display, that you are going to reflect the nature and the character and the image of our God in this place and in this city. And so 1 Corinthians is a really practical letter that looks at a lot of how do we do that? What are the gospel implications for our relationships and the way that we think and the way that we do things? And he's going to hit throughout the letter on about 11 different kind of behaviors um, and, and different issues that are going on. And so in Corinth so far, Paul's been writing a very pastoral letter, but it's also been a firm letter because they're not doing a great job of this, that a lot of sexual sin has influenced the church. And he's like, and you're just letting it go. And so we've seen earlier, back in chapter 6, he says, look, we judge sin amongst believers. Not a popular idea anymore. But then he goes on to say, but we don't judge sin that's going on out in the world because they're not walking with God. And so we can't tell them how to live. Instead, we, we live to the character and the standard and the nature of God, and people are going to be drawn to that, and we're going to tell them of the hope that we have, and they're going to be transformed because the gospel has power. And, and so as we've, we did this, we started last week in, in the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 7, and we just kind of probably honestly just had a little bit of an awkward sermon as we talked about married sex, right? Um, and, and so I was up here saying things that I never thought I would say on the, on the pulpit, right? Like I'm going, I, I told Carmen afterwards, I was like every little old blue-haired lady I've ever known was like screaming at me in the back of my head going, what are you saying, you know? Um, but 1 Corinthians 7 really is just going to look at the relationship of, of sexuality in the church. And so we've looked at, at married relationships. Next week we're going to look at kind of divorce and remarriage. And this week we're going to look at, at singleness in particular. Um, and because Paul is simply saying, look, there are implications for all of these different roles in relationships. And here's the thing. There's a reason we didn't say, married couples, y'all show up last week. You don't need to come this week because it's just for singles. 
Everybody else is off the hook unless you're divorced and remarried or in one of those two camps. Like, he writes these letters to the church, right? It's to minister to all of us because the fact is, is you may be married today and single in the future, right? Whether by your choice or not, whether by death or circumstance. And so what we want to understand is that the teaching is for all of us because we've been made a family. We have been brought together to love and to encourage and to walk with one another. And our circumstances may change. And so we want to, we want to be aware and knowing what the expectation is. We live, like we said last week, in an overly, overly sexualized culture, right, where restraint is not often lauded, right, where self-denial is, is mocked where it's really about ease and convenience, where, where there's basically kind of a, a sexual buffet that's just been laid out that says partake and have because you're, it's available to you, and it's easy to find and to access. And so knowing that and knowing that what Paul has said and that we're going to look at in the weeks to come is that marriage is the only outlet for sexual behavior, then that we have to deal with what does that mean then for singleness? What does that mean for those who are not currently married? And so let's pick up. We're actually going to read two different sections of 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to skip a section because we're going to come back to it next week. So if you'll begin with me in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And then if you'll turn over to 25. Now concerning the betrothed, which is like engaged. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if you are betrothed, if you are a betrothed woman married, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart being under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. All right, so a bit of a, a, bit of a strange passage, right? Not one that you're probably looking, thinking of all the dozens of sermons you've heard on this passage. 
Um, and so let's just kind of start with this. That there are multiple ways, right, to be single. There are those who are single by choice. They've chosen not to become married. It's been their decision. There are those who are single, um, and it's, it's really not by choice. It's either through the loss of a spouse or potentially through divorce. And then there are those who are single but are only single for now, right? Like they're, the, they're, they're not yet married. Like marriage is coming at some point. Um, whether it's by choice or whether you're not yet married, sometimes it's hard to know, right, if, if singleness is for you forever or not. Um, but Paul's going to say that both marriage is a gift and that singleness can be a gift. Jesus refer, talks about this type of singleness as well. This is in Matthew 19. He says this, and he, he uses the word eunuchs, which basically is talking about folks um, who have either by, by force or by, by nature or by choice have chosen not to, to have sexual relations. This is verse 12 of chapter 19. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus basically just says, look, there, there are folks who are going to choose singleness in this life. And, the, and that's not to be seen as, as odd or, or unusual. Like that we, we don't want to see that as, as, as second class. That singleness can come in many forms. And remember that what the situation in Corinth is, that, that what has happened is because there's, it's such an immoral culture that they've almost swung the pendulum back the other way. And now they're saying, if you have sex at all, you're less spiritual. Right? And so they're, they're calling for like um, celibacy even in the marriage relationship. And that's where we were last week where Paul's saying that's not, that's not, you're not supposed to do that, right? Marriage is the place where sexuality is supposed to flourish and where it's, it's a gift that's been given. And so he says like, look, we're not going to say that those who have refrained from sexuality are more spiritual than those who haven't. That's, that's not the call here. And what he wants to do now is to say like as a church family, what does it look like for married folks? What does it look like for single folks? So there's some issues here, right? Like we just have to understand that we live in a culture that influences us. And it, and it, disciples, us, it disciples us if we're not intentional enough, right, to, to fight back against it. And so there's this idea right now in our culture that would say, um, if you're single, maybe that's a, actually a really good thing because you're free to do whatever you want. Right, like any relationship, any 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 sexual liaison, any illicit behavior you want, you're not committed to anyone, so you can do whatever you want. And then there would be those who would say, if you're if you're single, that's weird, right? Like my would my have you not gotten married? My have you not done what culture has kind of said is is the norm? And so we're living in the extreme of both. And so if you're in the the church kind of subculture, they've said, hey, marriage should be the expectation. Even though Scripture hasn't said that, the church has said that. But if you're living in the world, it's, it's really the question I ask most often in marriage counseling now, pre-marriage counseling, is why are you getting married? Right? Because most of their peers are saying, why? Like, why do it? And so we kind of have both ends of the spectrum going on right now in our culture, where the world is saying singleness is probably the way to go, and where the church is saying singleness is weird. And neither one of those are accurate. Neither one of those are appropriate. The church honestly needs to repent of having seen um, singles often as lesser adults 
as those who are just simply waiting to be married and then they'll enter adulthood or some sort of second-class Christian. That like that marriage is like the, like the, the arrival point of like that that's the gift that we have. But the fact is, is in Christ, the gift that we have is salvation. And so singleness is also a gift. And marriage is also a gift, but we have a common gift, and that is salvation. And so we can see folks who have like rebelled against marriage and said, look, I I don't want the responsibility of it. I want to be free and loose and do whatever I want. And then we've seen folks who marriage has become an idol, and it's been been this like all-out pursuit of it almost to, the, like, to, to say, like, God, I want that more than you. And what Paul's going to say is there's, there's the healthy in-between where we can wait and receive and want it, but it doesn't become God. Another issue in this is that sometimes those who are not yet married or who have been married and aren't currently is that they question their worth and they question their identity. So this morning, like, if that's you or if, if you remember being in that place, would you just hear from the Lord this morning that in Christ you're chosen, right? It's not a matter of that you have been forgotten or ignored, that God has seen you and chosen you and made you His, that you are seen and known and chosen. Here's why we have to have a good theology, a good understanding of singleness, because we also live in a culture where there's an ongoing conversation about homosexuality. And often one of the arguments that those who want to make homosexuality like a, a biblical norm is they're going to say, is it, are you really saying that someone shouldn't engage in sexual behavior their entire life? That doesn't seem fair. Like that sexuality is the zenith or the pinnacle of human expression when it's not. Right? Because if, if we're willing to say that if, if I don't get to have sexual expression in my life, that would make me less than human, a less than a fulfilled life, then what do we do with Jesus? Right? Who for 30 plus years walked this earth as a single man. Are we going to say that he was less than man? That he was less than human? That he had a less like, satisfying life than us? Right, that we see that sexuality is a, is a portion of intimacy, but intimacy is possible apart from sexuality. Right? Like it begins to kind of press upon some of our presuppositions. And that ultimately, that celibacy is a gift that is given to some and to others because you are not currently married, regardless of what your attraction is. Right? You're not married. If marriage is the place where sexuality is to be lived out, then celibacy, right, is what we're called to. And I I get that as I say that, that's a really difficult thing, right? And it's why as we were in Exodus a couple months ago, and so we're looking, remember how God gave the manna? He said, I'm going to give you the food that you need every morning, and if you save more than you need, it's going to rot. Because what was the point? I want you to trust it'll be there tomorrow. And then I'm going to let you trust it'll be there tomorrow. I'm not looking for you to stockpile it and to store it up. And so for some of us, we imagine right now, whether it's singleness and the desire to be married, whether it's um, potentially infertility and the desire for kids, whether it's a lack of health and the desire for health, that we begin to look and we begin to think about, this can't be my stock forever. I can't not ever be married. I can't ever not ever have children. I can't ever not be healthy again. I can't ever not have money, right? Like, whatever it is that you're thinking about, 
But what God has called us to is to trust him today. And he hasn't said, I've given you enough, uh, enough faith and grace to fill the weight of that for the next 50 years. But he has said, I've given you enough for today. That there's enough for today. And tomorrow, when you awake, I'm going to give you enough. My mercies will be enough tomorrow for tomorrow's sake. And so at some point when we begin to act out in our sexuality outside of the confines of biblical marriage, what we're saying is this, I don't trust God. I don't trust that he will be sufficient tomorrow. I don't trust that he'll be sufficient in 10 years. I don't trust that he'll be sufficient regardless of what comes. And so ultimately what we see um, is, is that this is an issue of obedience. It's, a, it's an issue of faith. It's an issue of trust. And so that the world would look at someone who has, like, self-control and would deny themselves and would live to a godly standard and would say, that's crazy. We're saying, no, they're trusting that God is sufficient and that He is enough. And we're not saying that it's easy. We're not saying that it's easy, but we're saying that we trust that God will be faithful to us today as well as the day down the line. Because remember, this is the first sin, right? Remember the first sin was Eve saying, right, she hears the lie from the serpent that God has held out on her. And so she thinks that she can circumvent God to get what is better than him, to get a gift that he is holding out on her. And so she rebels and sins against him. And so ultimately what sin is, it's a lack of trust, a lack of faith in God. It's believing that we can pursue another path to get what we really want despite what God has said. And so when we look for ways around this, we're believing the first lie of the serpent who says, God doesn't have your best in mind. He's holding out on you. So, for those who are currently single, right? Like, what, what is the benefit, right? Some of you are thinking, I'm glad I am. Some of you are thinking, I want anything but to be single, but the fact is, is Paul gives some benefits. Paul was single. Whether, we don't know if he was a divorcee. We don't know if he was a widow or whether he had simply never married. We know he was single. We know Jesus was single. And what Paul says is this, right? Like that you get to use your life stage, your current circumstances, your situation, right? For God. Because based on the fact that you are not in a human, like marriage relationship or with kids, he's like, you've got more time. Right? And he says this. He goes, I want you to be free, in verse 32, from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. Right? He's saying, like, the goal, right, is not, to, it's not that we're waiting on marriage and then we get to serve the Lord. He says, as a single, you get to serve the Lord. You get to be faithful to him with undivided attention, time, and devotion. So think about how this would work on the mission field. There are places in the world, had this conversation this week, right, where a single man can go that just would not be wise to send a married couple. And there are places that married couples can go that families really shouldn't probably take children at this point, right? Like that our circumstances allow us to play different roles. I know some of you young moms you used to remember having coffee all the time and, and using your, your, your extra time to disciple other women and to pour into folks, and you're going, I have none of that. Like, I used to do that every week. Now I do it once a year because I have no time. 
right? That, and the Lord doesn't look at you and say, shame on you. Like, why were you so faithful and now you're not? But each of our circumstances are unique and different. And so whether you are married, with kids, without kids, whether you're a widow, whether you're currently single, God is calling us to faithfulness in our current life stage, that we're not waiting for the next thing to happen. He says, serve me, trust me, know me now, right? Now. And he gives them some reasons. He says, look, that to get married adds difficulty to your life. Now, some of you are trying really hard not to scream amen, right? (laughs) It's a good thing that you didn't, right? But what all he's simply saying is this, is that to be married adds a level of responsibility and of weight and of expectation, and you're caring for others. And so it means you have, by simple math, like by nature, you have less time to give to the things of the Lord. And so he's not going to say, don't ever get married. He's going to say, understand that when you do that, that you are giving up some of your freedom and your flexibility and your time. That is a part of it. He also talks about, it makes it sound like he thinks the end of the world is happening, right? He goes, in the, in the present time, verse 31, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings, for the present form of this world is passing away. What he's talking about, he's, he's not saying, hey, I think the world's going to end today, but the cross started something in motion. When the cross happened in Jesus' perfect life and his obedient death and his resurrection, he has put something in motion that the end is coming and that the end could happen at any point. And so he's saying we need to live like a little more unfettered from the world, that we're not looking to put down such deep roots. Peter says this in 1 Peter. We've got to remember that we are aliens and we're traveling. We're headed somewhere. This isn't our home. And the more encumbered we get in relationships, the more easy it is to forget that we're headed somewhere. We begin to get just really comfortable and say, this is pretty nice. I'll just do this forever. And yet the call of Scripture is that we're headed back to God to be with Him forever. So he's saying that the single person understands this better. They get this. Another aspect of this is not just that their life stage and their circumstances allow them to serve the Lord more, more fully, more often, it's that singleness actually points to the gospel. Now, we say this all the time in regards to marriage, that marriage points to the gospel because it's showing as a man and a woman demonstrate their love to one another, as they pursue each other, as they see each other's flaws and continue to love each other, that that's how God loves His people, right? That He demonstrates His love, and He loved us when we were sinners. He pursues us, and He transforms us. So we say, okay, so marriage is this picture of how God loves His people. So that's a picture of the gospel. Singleness is also a picture of the gospel, but it's, it's a picture of how the church is supposed to love God with undivided attention and focus and energy, right? Because what it's saying is, is Jesus is sufficient for me. He is. Because church, here's the thing. Marriage is actually going to fade away, right? Jesus teaches us this in Matthew. He says, in heaven, we're, we're, we're like the angels. We don't marry, Right? He's like, so singleness is our eternal state. Now, look, we we don't understand how all the human relationships are going to interact in heaven, but we know this, that that there's not going to be marriage in heaven, that we're going to be single. And, And so what singleness does in this day prior to heaven is it says, Jesus really is enough. He really is sufficient. He really can meet my needs. That only Jesus is 
necessary. I want to read to you, this is from Psalm 90. Verse 4. Sorry, verse 14. The psalmist writes this, So satisfy in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all of our days. Do you notice what he doesn't say is, Satisfy me, let me rejoice in my married days, in my days when the kids aren't at home, in my days where the kids are at home, depending on where you're at right now, right? Let me rejoice in my healthy days. Let me rejoice in my prosperous days. He says, Let me rejoice in all my days. That the Lord does satisfy, that He can meet our needs, that He does call us to Himself. And that, here's the thing, that our joy is not in our circumstances. Like, we, we, we know that, right? We know that intellectually. But our joy is in Christ. And Christ is over our circumstances. And so if our joy is only when we're healthy, right? We live in a broken world where there's sin and there's suffering, and we're going to be sick, and there's going to be hardships. If it's only in our relationships that we're putting our joy dependent in others, what Scripture calls us to is it says, you be joyful in Christ despite your circumstances. The one thing that lasts forever is our relationship with Christ. Marriage will fade away, right? Our bodies are going to break down, and they will be given new one day. But we are called to have joy in our Christ, in our rescuer, in our Savior, above and beyond our circumstances. So then, this. So how are we supposed, how can we serve those who are not married, right? How should we see them? One, we have to change our assumption, right? 1 Corinthians 7 is not about, okay, so how do we deal with those single folks, right? It's honestly, it's saying the single, singleness, they actually are living a, a more clearer picture of the kingdom of God for eternity. 1 Corinthians 7 is more of a of word of how does marriage fit into this? Because marriage is going to fade away. Marriage is going to go away. That we see them both as gifts. And so how do we serve one another in this? Church, in some really practical ways. That we mourn with those who mourn. That some are going to have seasons, times, periods where they're just going to be broken over the fact. They're just going to be mourning the fact that they're not yet married. Because Paul does not say to desire to be married is sin. It's okay to desire to be married. It's okay to long for that, to want that. And so if that is what you're longing for and desiring and it hasn't happened, then we would just want to come along and mourn with you, right? To weep with you. That's, that's the role of the church. We do that in death. We do that in life. We do that in all circumstances. But it's also the role of the church to help you keep from being bitter, right? To see that our joy is in Christ and not in our circumstances, I love this passage. This is Isaiah 56. Sometimes the, the thought that comes for those who are not yet married or maybe those who don't have kids is they're thinking, what about my legacy, right? Like, what am, what am I going to pass on? And Isaiah, he, he talks about this in verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant. So he's talking about people who are not married but are faithfully trusting and following them. Listen to what he says. I will give them in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What he's telling them is your legacy is not simply in your DNA. 
He's saying, it's in faithfulness to me, and there will be a name that will be remembered and put on my walls for all eternity that will not be cut off, lost, or forsaken. And so sometimes it may be that we mourn with those who are mourning, and sometimes we remind them, right, we can't get bitter here, (laughs) right? That the call of all Christians is to contentment in our circumstances, that we don't look at our situation and say, when I get what I want, then I'll be satisfied in Christ. We say, in my current situation, I will be satisfied in Christ until He changes my situation, until He changes my circumstances. Because marriage isn't our hope. It's not, what we, it's not where our hope will come. You get married, difficulties are going to continue. They're going to change, but they're going to continue. Our hope is not in children, right? Our hope is not in finances. Our hope is not in ease or in comfort. Our hope is not in wealth. All of those things can be taken from us, can be broken, right? The one thing that our hope is in is in Christ. And so we have to constantly be reminding ourselves we don't hope in what wasn't promised. And the fact is the Scripture doesn't say that everyone is going to get married. It does not say that everyone is going to have children. It does not say that everyone will have health. It does not say that everyone will have wealth. It does not say that everyone will have a life of ease and comfort that lacks suffering. What it does say is that in Christ we have hope and we have peace and we have security and we have stability and that one day every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. One day everything will be restored to the way it was meant to be. One day we will look at the light and momentary trials of this life and say, look how, look how small they are compared to the surpassing weight of glory we now experience. That does not mean that it's easy now. It does not mean there's not pain in that now, but it does mean that that's what we, we put our hope in. That's what we continue to remind our hearts and remind one another that we're longing for. And church, another practical thing is this. The New Testament says the family is bigger than those who live under your roof. It's bigger than your little family. Remember Jesus in Matthew 12 and in Mark, he says this. He's asked about his, his, his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And he says this in verse 48, chapter 12. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. The New Testament says that the family is bigger than this little thing. It's this. It is the church, that we are the family of God. We mean that, and the church has, has used that language so much and made it impotent because they didn't actually do anything about it. That we're supposed to be family, and that these are real relationships and intimate relationships where we live out the one another's of Scripture. We know each other, and we walk with each other, we mourn with each other, we, we laugh with each other, we encourage one another, we pray for one another, we forgive one another. And so it means involve people in your life, right? Like, bring them in, those who don't look like you, the widow, the orphan, right? The single, the divorcee, the married, the once married. Listen to one other just encouragement from Psalm 68, verse 6. So God settles the solitary, right, the one who's alone in a home, He leads the prisoners to prosperity and the rebellious dwell in a parched land. But God settles the solitary in a home. He makes us family. He makes us family. 
And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy, but it means that we continue to pursue Him together. Here's where we're going to end. This morning, ultimately, the call is this, is do we trust Jesus? Are we content in Jesus? Do we really believe that He meets needs and that He is sufficient? Because, church, there was a a day, this isn't just for the the singles to answer this morning, right? This is for all of us. Do you really believe that Jesus is sufficient when your circumstances are not what you want them to be? Because for years, for years, Carmen and I struggled with infertility. And, and, And so every month you're like hopeful and then it's dashed. And every month you're hopeful and it's right? And and you begin to go, God, if you'll give me what I want, when I want it, I'll be good. And God says, no, 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 you trust me now. Whether you get what you long for or not, you trust me now. You trust me now, period. And so the call isn't just, hey, this is a hard thing for those who are not yet married. This is a hard thing for those who have lost a spouse. Do we trust God in the midst of our grief. This is a hard thing for those who long for children and, and haven't had them. This is a hard thing for those who are, have wayward children, who don't love the Lord and have, have fled from the faith, right? This is for those who don't have the security or the wealth or the ease or the comfort they want, right? Do we trust that God is faithful to give us trust and contentment despite our circumstances? Do we believe him when he says that you are never alone, that you are never forsaken? Right? It matters then that Jesus is alive, that these aren't just words on a page, but that he hears our prayers, that he knows and understands, that he's given us his spirit. He's alive and that matters because your, your, your prayers are not bouncing off the walls. They're not being heard, heard by those who don't care. They're being heard by one who understands deeply. It's why we want to be a family as a church. Where this, this is a beautiful part of our week, but this isn't sufficient. We actually have to know each other and walk in relationship. That we would believe that His mercy is new every morning, and we are given an opportunity to trust that when there's pain in that trust. Also, when it's easy to trust. And finally is this. Would we just be reminded this morning that the ultimate prize is God? It's, it's him, it's not wealth, it's not health, it's not, tr- it's not treasure, it's not, it's not marriage, it's not children, it's not, it's not getting 95 years and dying in your rocking chair, right? The ultimate goal is to know and to treasure Jesus, that we get to know the eternal king. And what we long for him to say is, well done, good and faithful servant. So here's what, how that's going to sound. I want him to say, Jeremy, well done, good and faithful as a husband. I need, I got to be faithful in that role that he's called me to. Jeremy, well done, good and faithful as a parent in that role that he's called me to. Jeremy, well done, good and faithful as a pastor. Well done, good and faithful as a, right? Like I want, in every area he's called me to in life, I want him to say, well done, good and faithful. And for some, that's going to be, it's going to be this. Well done, good and faithful single who trusted me, who was trusted me when it was not easy. Well done, good and faithful who never had a child and yet trusted me. Well done, good and faithful who was impoverished for your entire life 
and yet you never rejected me. You never cursed my name. Well done, good and faithful, whose body was broken for the entirety of your life. Because here's your new one. Right? Like, we, it's not that this is for some of us. This is for all of us that we are called to trust his name and that he would call us faithful in our trust and contentment of him. And so next week, we'll look at another segment, right, of, of remarriage and of divorce, knowing that there, there's just pain and brokenness in all of this, that this one sermon doesn't fix all the scars and all the holes, and that we would let the Word of God be a balm to our souls, that we would let it encourage us, minister to us. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful to us. And this morning, many of us would nod our heads in agreement and say amen to that, and we don't feel it. We don't feel it. So, Father, would you pour out a reminder of your mercy and of your grace and of your nearness and of your faithfulness to us today? God, would we trust that you will give it to us again tomorrow and in a decade and in our old age? Father, that you are, you are just good to us. Father, without your spirit, these are just words, and so we ask that you would minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen.